Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest installment of For What It's Worth podcast. This is episode 54. It is 5.14 p.m. New Mexico time, and it is still snowing. After two and a half days of snow, two and a half days and nights, I should say, and about 18 inches of snow, we are still going, although it's tapering off and it looks like tomorrow we're warming up. I shoveled today in the driveway just for sport, just for fun. I hadn't done it in, I don't know, 40 years, and I thought, you know what, without my father screaming at me, it's actually a lot more fun, although I do miss Dad and his screaming at me. It was a full-time gig for him, and for that, I salute him. So, we have got a lot to talk about. We're going to go through the normal protocol here with for who is this for, our hero of the week, our scum of the week, and my tech woes, which took a twist this afternoon, not unexpectedly, knowing me, but just a quick rundown of my day. And uh, I just ate some wasabi, so my mouth is watering, and I have some green tea in front of me. But let's talk about my day. I got up regular time, not particularly crack of dawn early. I am reading the Graham Nash book, Wild Tales, which is awesome. Uh, it is a lot of fun listening or reading someone who lived that lifestyle for so long. It's pretty fantastic. And I actually met Graham Nash. He's a friend of my wife, I guess you could say. And they met through the photo industry. Graham had a, a business in L.A. called Nash Editions, which was a fine art printing company that uh, he was running with his friend Mac Holbrook, who I'm also friends with. Mac is awesome. And uh, anyway, reading this book about Graham, who, who loves photography, by the way, not just a world-class famous musician, but a photography lover. I actually met Graham, David Crosby, and Rob Lowe on the same night in Santa Barbara years ago. Yes, it was odd, I'll admit, but it's Hollywood, kind of. And uh, that's all I'm going to say about that. So I got up, and I didn't do yoga today for some reason. I don't know why. I think I was feeling a bit foggy. And also, I wanted to jump in and get started. So all I did for the most part today was write. So I have a list in front of me from Blurb of blog posts that I'm supposed to write. And there's hundreds of these things. And these are not like me saying, hey, I'm going to write this blog post and writing something on my shifter site. No, this is... Blurb coming and how it works is we work with the data teams and the SEO teams and the social teams and all that stuff. And people come up with topics and what's hot online and what people are asking about and typical questions and all that stuff. And then they give me a set of parameters and they're really good at it. So they give me parameters and say, these are the keywords you have to use. And these are some of the phrasing and some of the questions that you'll be answering. And then what I do is I take all that data and I wrap it in a first person story because 99% of the time what I'm writing about, I've actually done personally. So I will have personal insight into how it worked for me or suggestions that I would make because I've been in the situation before. And I think that's why the blog is doing really well. Not, I'm not blowing my own horn here. I'm just saying the blog, we're putting out really good content on the blog. And these are posts that would be applicable for everyone from consumers starting out to professionals in some ways. So I think I wrote 4,000 words today and I'm almost done with the next post. So I did five posts today and a little less than a thousand words a piece. And that took a long time. And I had all my conference calls. Some got canceled, some got moved. Some I didn't say anything on and others I spent the whole time blabbing. So that's pretty typical. I also did some AG23 stuff. I reached out to the designer to check on the proof and she's stoked, has it, is busy, but she's getting on it. That'll be done soon. We'll go to print soon. I was dealing with large order services today and also emailing with the CEO of our parent company, believe it or not, who is very keen on AG23. There's all kinds of stuff I can't share about AG23 that potentially might happen, but I can't guarantee it and I don't want to talk about it until it's done. And I think some of these things will happen and others won't. You know, we have a wish list, what we would love to do, and can we accomplish some of this? I hope so. Just know that all of these things are incredibly complicated and they're incredibly expensive. And so you have to find a balance. And plus, those of us who are working on AG, this is our second gig, right? I got full-time blurb, AG falls into second place. And Rick, who's the president and director of Beyond Clothing, he's way busier than I am. And so he's doing AG, squeezing it into his free time. So it's still worth doing, but it's, it's, it's a lot. And so I went for a, a, a hike with my wife right before this podcast because it's getting dark and it's not snowing and we wanted to get out and get some exercise. She had her snowshoes on. And when I saw her, the first thought was, I'm going to end up carrying those the entire hike, which I did. So she could use her poles and she was happy and, and I got to play the, the pack mule. All right. So who is this? If you're new to this podcast, I always start with who is this for? 
Like, who would waste an hour of their life listening to me? And there's quite a few people, oddly enough. It tells you how desperate, desperate the times are, I guess. This is for, who is this podcast for? It's for bong rippers on YouTube. Let me repeat that. The bong ripper channels on YouTube. Now, if you don't know about these people, there are YouTube channels where all the people do is take, take huge bong rips, right? Now, there's consistencies on most of these channels. And if you haven't seen these channels, they are definitely worth watching because they are hilarious. Their houses are always a bit disheveled. There's a penchant for wearing rainbow socks. They're always coughing while taking like six-foot glass bong rips with, and what are they smoking? They're smoking skunk, junk, trunk, paste, fiber, sap, seed, glue, resin, dust, debris. They will smoke anything. They layer up these bongs with combinations of, I guess you would call it marijuana substances, and they and basically there's so much in these in these bowls they don't use lighters like a lighter isn't enough they're using blow torches and a, and a blow torch that would cut a bucket off a front end loader like these are b- blow torches that they cook through these bowls and if you don't know what I'm talking about if you've never smoked pot in your life I am by no means an expert I've had friends who did nothing but smoke pot their entire life and by the way a lot of those people are incredibly functional high-functioning, intelligent, smart, creative people, believe it or not. If I smoked what they were smoking, I would never be able to move. I'd be comatose. And they're the polar opposite. So how they do it, I have no idea. I'm a, I'm a total lightweight, novice, rare, rare user kind of thing. But watching these bong ripper people on YouTube, I'm like, they would love my channel and my podcast because they are so high. They get lost in the middle of sentences, topics, their films go from one thing to another. The camera's on their, their rainbow socks, and then it's in the trees in the yard. And they smoke enough pot to, to literally tranquilize a, a charging Cape Buffalo. So for them, welcome aboard. I think you're going to like my podcast. This podcast is also for people who know that life is about more than hitting the send button. Good grief, people. Sending an email or a tweet isn't really doing anything. If you have a problem with something or someone or a cause or something that you believe in, please do more than hit the send button. It means almost nothing. But if you know that life is beyond the send button, then you'll like this podcast. And finally, who is this for? Anyone who has not seen The Mandalorian. I have not seen The Mandalorian. I am sick of answering that question. No, I've not seen it. There's probably a lot of things that you would assume I've seen that I haven't. So get over it. Get over yourself. And, and you know what? I'm not going to see it just to infuriate all of you people. Okay, let's move on. Who is our hero of the week? I'm going to be a bit contrarian this week on the hero and the scum. I might mix these up. You might flip them. I don't care. It's my podcast. The hero is anyone out there who is still, through a lack of common sense, decency, and taste, is still building a 50,000-square-foot pseudo-Tuscan mansion track home. If that's you, you're my hero. Because in the face of decency and taste and energy savings and every other good decision in the world, you've decided to make something with a game room, a man cave, a pool, a fish tank, and a helipad. And for you, I tip my hat, you are my hero. Because everything in our culture and society is telling you not to, and you're doing it anyway. If you've got more money to burn and zero taste, this you are my hero. And by the way, if you're burning more energy than a Russian coal mine, that's commendable. I mean, it's not easy. The, typically, the wealthier we are, the more energy we burn. We have more vehicles, bigger houses, boats. We travel more. The higher up you go on the wealth scale, the more egregious your carbon footprint really is. You're my hero. And the scum of the week... Yeah, I told you I was going to be contrarian here. The scum of the week is anyone building a tiny house. F you, tiny house people. You forest nymph hawking hobbit lives in Norway or Sweden while hiding their film crew, lackeys and lemmings off to the side of the camera and acting like you're alone. Yeah, you are the scum of the week. I'm tired of the tiny house. I want to drive over the tiny house in my SUV, if that's, if that's possible. If you're reducing your carbon footprint, scum. Anyone pawning the van life as anything glamorous, bisexual, or a way to hold giant stacks of cash 
in the foreground while you explain the depths of your pandering nonsense. Yes, you are scum. By the way, anyone who keeps giant stacks of cash in their van is a moron. Are we still falling for that? You know, the rappers with the giant piles of cash that they have to give back as soon as the shoot's over. Are we still doing that? We are, because I've seen it on van life channels. And the last scum of the week is sailors faking disaster while thumbnailing their brawless wife, right? That's what happens. This is what the sailing channels have all done. It's amazing to me that sailors who are living what looks to me a pretty darn good lifestyle, they seem to be desperate, maybe as desperate as anyone on YouTube. And the way the desperation shows up is they claim they fake a disaster. Like we sank in the middle of the Caspian Sea, and then you watch the channel and realize they were never near the Caspian Sea, and they didn't sink. And then the thumbnail for the film is that whoever the female is on the channel in some super swanky, slinky, brawless outfit as the thumbnail. That, to me, I think that qualifies as scum of the week. I really, I really do. But yet, I'm sure those channels get 10 kazillion views, which, if you don't know kazillion, it's right next to million I'm pretty sure it's the one step up from million. By the way, I'm an expert on finance, math, and the metric system. That's why I have 15-inch tires on my bicycle. Wink, wink. By the way, I love doing that. I love mixing up the metrics and then putting it on my YouTube channel because people reach out and go, you did it wrong again. And then I, I do it. But maybe I do have 15-inch tires on my bicycle. Maybe you don't know. Maybe I built something custom. All right, the tech woes of the week. The dark heart, my dark heart, pulls joy from batteries. There's just no two ways about it. My dark heart drains batteries like you cannot believe. But today, something even better happened. We, we were desperate. We've reached out to every single internet service provider in the city, in the region, and we just keep hearing either no, we don't offer service to your area, or the service we offer is 1.5 megabits per second, which is kind of hilarious, uh, or... We need line of sight. And today was the last ditch attempt at line of sight with the second line of sight company. They drove out, they put the ladder up, they climbed on the roof, and the guy's like, no dice. He's like, now, there's a guy with a house on a mountaintop between you and our signal, our main base, and if we can convince that guy to put a tower on his property, and you can beam from your house to his property and from his property to our property, then it will work. And I was like, I don't think I want internet that bad. And no way am I going to walk up some guy's driveway and say, hey, can I put a tower on your property? That's a good way to get like a 243 slug through your kidney. So I think I'll pass and I'll be driving into town for internet as I am doing now for the most part. Let's move on. Uh, 13 minutes in. This is pure gold. It's rich. I'm hoping that most of you are, are feeling like you're in an oil bath right now. Okay, point number one. And I thought about this on the hike about how I could about how I could present this without sounding like an angry old guy. But I don't view me as an angry old guy. View me as someone who spent enough time in an industry and enough time educating myself to have a basic understanding of right and wrong. And and to preface this, I need to say something that I have said literally a thousand times, but this is a topic that comes up in conversation all the time, and I'm amazed at how many people do not understand this, and I'm not pointing a finger and saying people aren't intelligent. I'm just saying it should be more common knowledge, and that is that you have the online photography world, which is, we'll just call it the YouTube world, and then you have the industry of photography, which is assignments. It's editorial, commercial, advertising, automotive, fine art, you know, the real deal people who are working full-time as photographers that are working with agents and art buyers and gallerists and curators and the people who are doing the photography that you see in the world, not the YouTube people who are just putting stuff on YouTube for unknown audiences from around the world who are subscribing to them and following them. These are two completely different worlds. Most of the time, there is very little, if any, communication between these two worlds, and most of the superstars in each world are unknown to the other. So if you often take online photographic YouTube superstars and ask any art buyer, 
in Los Angeles or New York or Paris or London who these people are, most of the time they would say, I have no idea what you're talking about, and vice versa. If you said to them, hey, do you know so-and-so YouTube film photographer or YouTube photographer, they would be like, no idea, I've never heard of this. These are just parallels, right? They're not perpendicular, they're parallel. Occasionally, I'm assuming there would be some sort of crossover, but I think it's pretty rare. So one of the things that I've noticed that's happening in the online photo world is that photographers are basically, how do I put this politely? They're stealing projects, right? They're looking through the annals of what's been done in the industry of photography. And because their audience is uninformed, clueless, has no education in photography, and really has no understanding of the history of the industry, they don't know any better. So these photographers are doing projects that are based on famous projects from actual photographers who have already done this decades ago. Now, there's absolutely nothing wrong with doing a project and tipping your hat and acknowledging up front, saying, okay, look, I just stumbled across so-and-so and this project that they did. We'll call it the Bees Project. It was so good. It was so impactful that it really changed my life. It changed how I look at the world. It changed my photography. And I want to go do something that pays homage to this project. But what you are doing up front is acknowledging that relationship. You are acknowledging the fact that what you are about to do is not original. It is derivative. And again, there's nothing wrong with doing this if you acknowledge what you are doing. These bozos on YouTube are not doing that. They're doing projects, never acknowledging where this idea came from. But anyone who knows the existing original project from the other artist knows that they're cloning it. That they're basically stealing as much as they possibly can, then pawning it off as their own. Or pawning it off with like a derivative storyline or messaging where they're kind of masking the idea of why they went to these places and made these photographs and, and focusing on technique or something. And you're like, anyone who knows photography takes one look at that and says, that's plagiarism. That is visual plagiarism any way you look at it. Just realize this, people. Coming from the journalism world, I have a degree in photojournalism. I worked in the journalism industry for not, not, not that long, but you know, five, six years. When I got a job, my first internship at a newspaper, the first day, the photo editor sat me down and said, these are the things that will get you fired. Okay, You misspell a name. You get someone's name wrong in a caption. You set up a photograph, you know, X, Y, and Z. You, if you do this and you're caught, you will not come back to the paper. You are fired immediately, and we don't want to see you again. There, this was pre-special pre behavior, pre-kit gloves, pre-making sure everyone was happy. This was just like the actual real world back then. No one cared about your feelings. Plagiarizing was instant firing, not to mention, that was a shadow you could never, ever shake for the rest of your career. If you plagiarized someone and it went to print and you got caught, you were done forever. That is the seriousness of that charge. So when it comes to co-opting someone else's project or story or location, you better damn sure acknowledge what it is you're doing. Because if you don't, and you get caught by someone who knows, you are done. And, and Frank, if you're, I mean, it's, it could even get crazier than that. I'm not joking. I would assume that someone could take legal action against you. And the litigious world that we live in, I don't think that's outside the bounds of possibility. I think there are people out there who are so successful, who have teams of lawyers that are looking for infringements that could just say, you know what, you're plagiarizing us. And, um, you know, that work is whatever. What if they copyrighted it? It's just nuts. So if you're doing this, if you're on YouTube and you're doing this, stop. Because it's embarrassing for photography in general, and it actually makes the entire idea of photography less than it should be. And frankly, photography needs all the help we can get right now. It is not a healthy industry, and that's due to a lot of reasons, and COVID has certainly not helped. I think a huge percentage of photographers that I run into who are legitimate photographers are down 50 to 75% over the last year, which is not good. So I'm hoping that rebounds because I hope there's too many good people out there who make great work, and it's sad to see them sort of struggling. I think once ultimately we get beyond COVID or into a new COVID permanent world and we just learn how to navigate it better, things will come back. 
So there's there's no shortage of need for photography, but I just hope things things work out. Okay, moving on. Point number two. Oh man, I gotta take a deep breath here. This is something that's odd. Point number two is about anti-kneelers. Okay, now I don't even know if that's a real word. But these are the people who are opposed to athletes, celebrities, anyone taking a knee in protest. Now, the person who was the lightning rod that got this started was Colin Kaepernick, who was a quarterback at the time for the San Francisco 49ers, the hated, dreaded, awful San Francisco 49ers. I can say that as a former New Orleans Saints fan. Uh, they, they were a thorn in our side forever, going back to the 1980s when I started following the 49ers. Epic battles over the years, but I hate the Niners, I'll be honest. But Kaepernick took a knee. And if you don't remember this story, Kaepernick took a knee to dispute or to bring attention to police brutality. Uh, and it was immediately spun. His story was spun. Uh, it was spun by politicians. It was spun by the commissioner. It was spun by five fellow players. My, my beloved Drew Brees had his head up where it shouldn't have been for a long, long time. And I think Brees had the respect of his teammates, and his teammates were able to pull him aside after he made a public statement, and his teammates pulled him aside and said, look, you got one more chance. We're going to explain this to you again, and we're going to give you one more chance, and you better understand this has nothing to do with the flag. The story was spun when Kaepernick took a knee, and Kaepernick rubbed... Well, Kaepernick was a lightning rod for a lot of reasons. The way he looked the way he dressed, the way he wore his hair. These were, these were basically indicators to a certain kind of person that he was a little bit too revolutionary for his own good. And so these people took offense. They did not want to acknowledge the police brutality, and in, in the minority communities especially. And they basically said, we're going to turn this into a flag. It's an anti-flag issue. It's an anti-military issue. All of these things came out of right field, and they twisted this narrative. Donald Trump did it for four years. Roger Goodell, in bowing to Donald Trump, covered Donald Trump and said he played along with it. All of these players and, and people who aren't even in the league, civilians said, oh, this is an anti-flag protest. Let me just say this again. This has absolutely nothing to do with the flag. This was about bringing attention to a social, political issue, basically, with police brutality, uh, asking for police reform and for changes to happen. Then it took off. And now there's people kneeling all over the place in every different league and sport, and there's, people are doing it all over. So it ha and, and, and in reality, it was based on desperation. They tried and tried and tried. They tried every means possible to get attention on this story, and nothing worked. And the second he took a knee for injustice... It worked, and people started talking about it. African Americans, Latinos, Native Americans, everybody, they tried everything, and it didn't work. They had successes, but we needed a broader conversation. Kaepernick knelt. It had nothing to do with the flag. It had nothing to do with the military. You know, Breeze, when I think his, his infraction was saying something like, you know, saying something about like, well, I would never not support the troops, or some weird, twisted take on this. And then, his, again, his teammates pulled him aside and said, dude, you are so far off base. And to his credit, he made a public statement. He, I think otherwise he'd have lost the team. But he made a public statement and said, look, I didn't understand this. I had this wrong. So anti, I just saw a T-shirt the other day about anti-kneelers. And I, I looked at the T-shirt, and I was like, you're just completely and utterly missing the message. Like, let's, it's just lame. And I think there's people out there who want to miss the message, and there's some people who just don't know. They actually think it's about the flag or the military. Okay, point number three, moving on. I got two more emails today about, uh, from very nice people. One was asking, and these were people asking to buy prints of mine. One had very specific desires, um, gave me measurements, gave me measurements for the border, was very polite about it to, and included the image and said, this is, I would love to have a print of this and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then someone else, and that was from a picture from the desert, a uh, project called Man Versus Nature. And then I had another one from my Sicily project that someone reached out for a print. And I tried, and I don't like writing these emails because it never sounds right or good. And I wrote back and I was just like, look, I'm not selling prints. 
I haven't for a long time. I haven't for probably 10 or 11 years. Every time someone reaches out to buy a print, 99.9% of the time, I say no. I have absolutely no interest, and it's not just the interest. So I have no interest in selling books or prints, none. I love making photographs, and I love doing projects and turning those projects into a book, but the book is for me. I make one copy, I look at it, and I go, Dan, did you do a good job, or did you do a middle, medium job, or did you suck? And then I judge it, I may tweak it, make another copy, but once I get it where I want, I throw it in a box, and I move on and go do another project. I have no interest in being a photographer, I have no interest in being known as a photographer, I have no interest in selling photographs, prints, books, anything. And I don't know, I, I've kind of always been this way. And it was definitely detrimental to my career because even back when I was a photographer, when people would reach out to buy prints, it always gave me a bad feeling because I was like, oh, I have to print it, I have to sign it, I have to frame it, I have to ship it. I'd rather just go do something else. I'd rather, and now, because I've, my life's super busy with other things, it's even worse. So if you're reaching out to me, to get a print, buy a print, um, I'm not going to do it. I think the last time I did this, I, I made a picture once of Jesse Jackson and Ann Richards, who was the governor of Texas. And I had this picture. They were right on top of me. I shot it with a 24 Tri-X with a Vivitar 283 on a Nikon FM2. It was at University of Texas at Austin, and I'd run across campus to do this assignment, and I was soaked in sweat. And what I remember is Ann Richards reaching out and putting her hand on my back and then recoiling her hand in horror because it was covered in sweat. And Ann was like a good old girl, right? She's a Texas good old girl. And she kind of laughed, but she had this mortified look on her face. Anyway, I made this picture. And I sold that print to someone, I think, or I might have given it away. But I think that was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. I was like, I don't want to do this. I just, I don't care. I'll make pictures, great. But, I mean, I have a Canon Pro 1000 printer that's technically it's plugged in in my office and I've never made a single print on it and I've had it for a year and a half. So that should tell you about how I'm thrilled I am about printing. Okay, point number four. This is good and exciting. I bought a Insta360 X2 camera. It is a 360 camera. Now, you might be of one of two schools when it comes to 360 content. You might say to yourself, this is gimmicky. Or you may say to yourself, it's actually kind of interesting. I was completely neutral. I just looked at it as a new skill to learn, and I figured I would throw it in. I plan on spending a copious amount of time in the future alone in the world. And the 360 camera simply provides a way for me to film things that I could never do on my own without spending unbelievable amounts of time, multiple cameras, multiple tripods, going back and forth over a scene, and I just don't want to do that. So I bought this Insta360. It's the X2. It's tall and skinny. It doesn't look like a GoPro. It looks like a very, it looks like, I don't know what it looks like. It looks like a TV remote, a small TV remote. So I get this thing, and I wanted to give you a heads up about something. So first of all, let me tell you how the camera works. So it comes with a variety of different things. I bought it with two selfie sticks, one long one that looks like a normal selfie stick that telescopes out, and then a short one that turns into a tripod. And both of them, through the software, are automatically removed from the footage. So the selfie sticks do not show up in the footage, which is kind of amazing, right? It's easy. It just solves all that having to try to take it out or seeing the selfie stick. Personally, I don't care if you see the stick, but it is kind of nice. The second thing is the stabilization on this camera is so far beyond any stabilization I have. It blows my GoPro out of the water. It is incredible. I, I stuck this thing on my handlebars on the bike the first time I ever used the camera. And I rode single track, and I'm looking down at this thing, and it looks like it is vibrating so bad, it looks like it's going to blow apart into a thousand pieces. And I'm thinking to myself, all of this is unusable. This is not going to be usable. Because I don't have suspension on my bike. So it's rigid fork. This thing is attached to the handlebars. Every single vibration, even on the road, on the pavement, I was looking down at it and thinking, this isn't going to be usable. My GoPro would not look that great if I did this. Even walking, my GoPro doesn't look great. I got back, and the footage was silky smooth. I was so blown away. The quality of this thing, it shoots in 5.7K. Now, here's, here's the, that's the upside. The, the, the quality of the footage, the size of the camera, the durability, it's waterproof, the battery lasts a long time. 
I bought it with a little micro SD that's big enough to hold more footage than I'm ever going to use in the history of using this camera. And the stabilization is world-class. Oh, and by the way, the, the speaker, the sound is not, is also fantastic. Although it will pick up wind noise and I'm not sure how you would mask the wind on a camera like this because there's no, the mic is sort of all encompassing. So I'm not sure how you could mask that. I'm sure there's a way, but I have no idea. And I don't care because most of the time I'm not going to have, I'm not going to use the ambient sound anyway. Here's the downside of the camera. It's 5.7K. So to get it to work, to, to be able to do this in Adobe Premiere, which is by far the most complicated program I have ever used. I, I'm kind of frustrated with Adobe Premiere because it is so complicated. And most of the things that you're doing are buried in menus and menus and drop downs and screens and everything. It's just overwhelming. The other problem is when you, so the camera makes this specific file type that's native to the camera. So to be able to use it in Premiere, you have to get a plugin, which I did. And then you also have to download, you should download this software from the camera, from Insta, which I did. And then you also download a plugin from GoPro, which is a reframe plugin, which I did. So you drag this stuff into Adobe Premiere, and even with a brand new Apple laptop, so I don't have the M1 laptop, I have the version right before, but it's brand new. It's way too slow to, to work with this footage. You cannot scrub 5.7K footage in, your, in this laptop. It just will not. You cannot get a, a clean play. And that is so aggravating to not, you know, you hit the space bar to play and then there's a delay of like five seconds and then it hitches and it doesn't match what you hear sound, but it doesn't match what you see on the screen. And then you hit the space bar and there's a delay. It's just not powerful enough to scrub 5.7K. So you have to do, you have to create proxies. So you go back, you start a new sequence, you go to, and how you do your sequence, you know, doing a 4K sequence is not always not a bad idea, even if you're shooting 1080. But then you have, you say, okay, create proxies when you bring this footage into the computer. And even still, I cannot get it to, I cannot get it to scrub and play. And I think there's something not working. I think half the time I bring the footage in and it's so pixelated, you, it's just, you, you can hardly read it. And even on the export, it's pixelated. So something's wrong there. And then I don't think these proxies are either landing with the file or being associated with the file. Even though I've checked all those boxes and have the proxies built up, I cannot get it to do that. The app on the phone actually is really easy. And I'm at the point now where I'm like, if I'm, maybe I just use that footage on the phone, I export from the phone, import that stuff into Premiere and go that route. So I don't have to try to do this in Adobe Premiere and I just keep it simple. But quality, stabilization, and point of view, especially on the bicycle, oh my God. I mean, you've got a 360 degree angle. I've never seen footage like, I mean, just the first time I shot it, I was like, wow, this just upped my bike life filming. And the camera's not that expensive. It's like 500 bucks. For 500 bucks these days, you can get a pretty incredible camera. So I love it. I'm just scratching the surface of how it works. I'm going to use it sparingly, but it's going to be very strategic, especially when I'm by myself and I'm in my canoe. Did I mention I was buying a collapsible canoe? I am. I haven't bought it yet, but I'm going to any day now. And that will be a blast to have this thing in the canoe, on my bicycle, when I'm hiking, when I'm fishing, all that stuff. Okay, moving on. Point number five, Rush Limbaugh is dead. Now, I'm going to do something that you might find surprising. I'm going to defend Rush Limbaugh at least to a certain degree. And the reason I just added this point into this week's podcast, one, because he just died. But two, I saw some things that were kind of bothering me. I saw a lot of people that I knew online claiming they were really happy that Rush was dead. And I think that that's a really bad approach. I think when you, glee, when you gloat about Rush Limbaugh dying, the right digs in even deeper. We're drawing lines. They look at us or anyone on the left, and they go, look how savage you are. You're Antifa, right? That's the, the great insult now is that whatever goes wrong with the right, they blame on Antifa. So when you say, I'm glad Rush is dead, first of all, you have to be a human first. Rush had a family. He had friends that I'm sure held him dear, right? Regardless of what he did and said in his lifetime, doesn't matter. They held him dear. So those people are in pain, and what you're saying is, I'm glad all of you are in pain because I'm glad this person is dead. That's not cool. That's not a good tact. That's how we got where we are now is drawing these lines in the sand and saying these horrible things. So the other thing I'm going to do here, 
now that I said I don't think you should say you're happy that he's dead, is I've mentioned this before, but Rush had a very interesting impact on my life personally through my father. So my mom calls me today. I talked to my mom six times today. She's in Texas. She still has water and power. She's one of the few. Um, and she said, you know, Rush Limbaugh died. I go, yeah, I know. And she goes, oh, we used to listen to him. It was just so entertaining, right? Okay, so here's the thing about Rush that you might, you lefties out there, you snowflakes, you might not be thinking about. A lot of the people that I saw saying they were happy he's dead are lefty snowflakes who are constantly online trying to build followings, right? They're living a phony life. They're spinning phony tales to try to make their life look perfect so that people follow them. Just take a look on the surface of what Rush Limbaugh did, what he was able to accomplish. He did not invent right-wing radio, but he brought it mainstream. He brought it mainstream in a way that nobody had ever saw, had ever seen coming. He landed with a thud and made millions and millions of dollars and created an, a media empire, which is what all of my journalism friends want, but will never, ever, ever come close to getting. Rush did it. He also inc influenced incredibly half of the American population. He held a death grip on half. So basically, let's say 75 million people were in his tractor beam. Again, how many of you in the media, how many of you on Instagram are ever going to see or sniff anything remotely like it? You won't ever. None of us will. So in terms of his media empire, you have to tip your hat and say, look, he made the Kool-Aid, but nobody forced us to drink it, right? He, he made the Kool-Aid. And let's face it, people, he was not a journalist. He, was a, he made Kool-Aid for the masses. He was the Jim Jones of radio, and people drank it. My father drank it. My mother drank it. I watched my father go from normal Republican to angry, isolated, attacking right-wing Republican, and that was because— of one Rush Limbaugh. Now, my mother did not remember, and she's having cognitive issues, so she did not remember how much time I spent in the car, the truck, with my father. So of my siblings, the only one that really had a lot of shared common interest with my father was me. We would hunt together, we would fish together, uh, we would shoot together, all the way from South Texas on the Gulf Coast all the way to the Arctic territories, all the way up into the Northwest Territories in, in Canada, my father and I, in float planes and canoes and Lund 18-footers with Evinrude 20s on the back, we spent a ton of time together. And when we were in the car, he would listen to Rush. And we had this conversation over and over. And I explained this to my mom this afternoon. I said, look, I would ask my father, you understand that this is propaganda. This is not real. Rush has an agenda. If you took Rush and Hannity and Glenn Beck off camera and had a conversation with them, and you were in their circles, what they're saying in private is completely different than what they're saying on the air. On the air, they, are, they have an agenda that they are driving towards. Rush was hugely responsible for the success of Donald Trump. I think in private, Rush probably said what everybody else said about Donald Trump. He's a buffoon that can't string two sentences together. But in public, it was about creating the facade of power, and it worked incredibly well. So am I happy he's dead? No, not at all. Was I a, am I a believer in his, in his messaging? No. Am I in awe of what he was able to accomplish? Yeah, I am. It's, it's pretty powerful. However, whatever side of the political spectrum you fall on, you cannot deny what he pulled off. And to a lesser extent, the, heck, the Becks and Hannity's and all those guys, they're even more batshit than, than Limbaugh was to a point where they're kind of caricatures of that right-wing media person. They will never be what Rush was. And here's another thing, the last thing I'll say about Rush that was really good and something you can learn from is Rush had specific techniques that he did really well. He did way better than anyone in the left wing, left wing side of media. They still haven't figured this out. They pout. Like you, you turn on CNN and all it is is our, our anchors pouting that the world isn't fair. So Rush would do something like this. Let's say that he was talking about fracking. Right, He would say, you know, fracking, and he would have all these absolutely, completely inaccurate, untruthful statistics about fracking. 
And of course, everything would be laced by he w- he would just invent stuff. You know, the Democrats invented fracking and all of the environmental whatever. He you know it's just the the sort of BS propaganda that that any sort of slanted radio is. But here's what he would do right before commercial break. Right before commercial break, he would drop something so implausible that you would say, wait a second. For example, and I'm just making this up, he would say something like, well, we've got to take a break. You know, we're going to be, this is a short break. We're going to be back and I'll be back with, um, you know, God, people are talking like Osama bin Laden had a baby. uh, Osama bin Laden's wife had a baby out of wedlock with Barack Obama. I mean, people are talking about this. All right, we'll go to commercial break. He would throw out something so completely unrealistic and untruthful and then go to break. So remember what I said earlier. He made the Kool-Aid. He didn't force people to drink it. They drank it on their own. So they're already drinking the Kool-Aid. And then 10 seconds before the break, he throws out Obama had a baby out of wedlock with bin Laden's wife and goes to break. So that two minutes of the break, they're sitting there going, no way. Are you kidding? And then when he comes back from break, he can come back with a story that's partially untrue and keep on message with something that's untrue but pales in comparison to the Obama bin Laden story. So the audience is primed for insanity when they come back from the commercial break and he hits them with something that's on-task messaging for the Republican Party. And I was like, I heard him do it 10,000 times. And I was like, here it comes. And he does it really well. Again, learning techniques from these folks about how they got to be where they are, you have to strip the politics out and go, look, if this is your mission in life or you want to do the same thing, you better learn from those techniques because Rush proved one thing. It works, right? So you know what? He's, He's gone. I feel bad for his family his kids, his friends, whatever. He, we're all human beings. We don't always agree, but like, don't, don't gloat over someone's death. Okay. Uh, point number six is going to be really fast because it's about politics again, but uh, Greg Abbott in Texas right now is getting hammered because of the, the freeze. My brother is without power and water. My sister's without power and water. They're both trapped on their property. Their pipes are exploded. The city has no idea when the water's coming back on. They have no idea when there's power. You have politicians in Texas who are saying, ah, you know, tough shit. Only the strong will survive. That idiot had to resign. But, you know, Abbott is a stooge. He was a Trump stooge. He's made one bad decision after another. You have Ted Cruz. So, And I'm throwing the Republicans under the bus here only because they're the most egregious violators at the moment. So let's take McConnell, let's take Graham, let's take Cruz, and let's take Abbott, for example. The only way, and this applies to to politicians in both parties, because the lefties, lefty snowflakes have their own crazy politicians, and I'm going to get to something in a minute that shows you that not all is fine and dandy on the left. But I'm going to throw the Republicans under the bus now because they're, they're making it so easy for me. Let's take those four clowns. There is no right and wrong. There is no rationalizing. Those days are gone in our political spectrum. They just are gone. There is no reason for these people to do the right thing. All four of those individuals know what the right thing is, and they have specifically chosen to avoid doing it for political reasons, for power, and for money, and for remaining in office. We have them on video, all of them, saying one thing on a Monday and something else on a Tuesday over and over and over again. The only way that we can ever impact our politicians now, and this is going to sound bad, but it's true, and I'm going to throw this out there with the mild flavor, not the mid-range flavor or the high flavor, just mild. The only way to influence our politicians is through the Fs, family and finance. Recently, when some of these folks tried to fly and they went to the airport, they were accosted by civilians screaming at them, you traitor, you liar, et cetera, et cetera. McConnell tried to go eat dinner somewhere, and people in the restaurant started chanting negative things towards he and his family. That is the only thing that will work moving forward, is if you put one of two things or both in jeopardy. Family and finance. 
if their finances are brought into question or in jeopardy, they will reverse course and do the right thing immediately because what every politician wants is to get reelected. Reelection means power and money. If you froze their assets, if you said, wait a second, something funny's going on here. You said this, Lindsey Graham, you said this on camera two days ago. You've reversed course. Why? What is this tied to? Oh, this ties back to this financial deal for funding. We're freezing your assets until we figure this out. This would stop. The same thing applies if their family goes to dinner and the second you leave the house, someone says, hey, aren't you so-and-so's daughter or son? Wow, your dad threw us all under the bus. Your dad's a liar. And if you're going to the grocery store and the, and the restaurants and the airports and people are hounding you and it, get, it gets back to mom or dad or uncle or grandfather, whoever was the one that's perpetrating these, I guess, political crimes against humanity, it's going to change. Because they're going to say, dude, cut it out. Like, I got to live my life and I can't because people – now, I don't, I'm not in say, saying any way, shape, or form about harming people. It's just voicing your opinion and saying, look, your father or mother or uncle or cousin or whoever is the politician knowingly did the wrong thing. If you put pressure on them, it will get back. I don't know how else we could ever change our politics now. We have gone over the precipice. We, there is no such thing as truth anymore in the political spectrum. There is only spin. And the people who are mastering the spin are killing it. They are making money. They are consolidating power. They are taking advantage of every single loophole in the system. And again, both parties, we have to change our system. And I think I'll be aged out by the time we actually do. But it's sad to say that's what it's come to. But when you have politicians on tape saying something we all know is untrue, and then the following day reversing course, and the following day reversing course again and again and again and again to play a political game with no repercussions, you understand it's learned behavior. They know they can get away with it. They're not going to change because there's no reason to change. There's no threat. Look, it's like when my, when my nephew was little, and he was acting like a total shit, you had to put borders on him, right? You had, otherwise, that little monkey would control us entirely. He was so manipulative, and he was so good at it because he's so smart. Even from a little jelly ball, he knew what he was doing. You had to put parameters on it. When I was growing up as a kid, my parents were considered very much disciplinarians compared to many of the parents of my friends. And we knew. My parents were like, look, you can do and, do and say anything you want. But know there is a penalty when you cross the line. And we knew when we crossed the line, whether it was with behavior or verbalizing something, if we crossed the line, there was a penalty and you were going to pay. And that kind of kept you inside the, the barricade. At times, you know, you said, look, I believe in this strongly. I'm going to take the penalty. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bounce off that bumper and get whacked. But you know what? I feel strongly. And most of the time, my parents would say, okay, tell me why you feel so strongly about that. And you'd work it out. But without those borders... I was manipulative too. I was, a, I was a little shit. I would have done whatever I could, however I wanted. So our politicians are no different from, from children, really, I guess. And I, don't have any, and I don't have any kids, which makes me an expert. Okay. Point number seven is about guest posts. I get, I don't know how many communications every day, every week, about people writing guest posts. And I should have thrown this in with the selling prints. I'm never going to do guest posts. No. It always creeps me out when I get people asking to do guest posts. And some people are really pushy and aggressive. Whoever's doing that, if you're sending pushy, aggressive posts about doing stuff on my sites, I'm never going to do that. It's weird. It's like LinkedIn, to me, is the most adult social network out there. If you, I know the CEOs that I know and the power people I know use LinkedIn. They may not communicate. They may not post a lot. But when they're headhunting and they're looking for people, they're tracking them on LinkedIn. So to me, it's the adult in the room. But I get cold call messages on LinkedIn from people I don't know asking for money for companies. And I'm like, does this work? Does this actually work on anyone? Have any of you ever gotten one of those and said, oh, man, where's my checkbook? I'm going to send some gold bullion to this guy um, because this seems like a great idea. It's weird. I'm not going to do guest posts. My site is a lifestyle site without the style. Why anyone would want a guest post on my site is a miracle. It's not like it gets high traffic. It's not like anyone is listening to this podcast. I'm doing it anyway. Go guest post on somebody's site that 
might actually help you if they fall for that stuff. Okay, point number eight is that this was a story, a small story that should have been more, but um, T.J. Ducklow, uh, who works for the Biden administration, resigned after threatening a reporter. And I just wanted to throw this in there because this happens all the time now. And again, this is about slipping. This is about what I said a minute ago about learned behavior. Even though Trump is gone, the insanity that went on during his administration, the residue of that is still around. It's in culture and society all around us, all the time. What wasn't acceptable prior to him that became acceptable is still here. So for this guy to threaten a reporter, that is immediately fireable offense. That person should be gone forever. And lefties out there, this happened on your watch, on your team. So don't go pointing the finger. Now, it is kind of cool to see press conferences for the first time in four years, an actual person at a podium answering questions and talking. That was kind of a novelty. When I first heard this a couple of weeks ago, I was in the van, I turned on the radio and by horrible, tragic mistake, it landed on CNN on satellite radio. And, I, and it took me about two minutes to figure out what the hell I was listening to. And I was like, oh, my God, this is a White House press conference. There's someone at a podium. They're answering questions, kind of. But they're up there. They're making an effort. And I was like, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. We used to do that all the time. And then we had a four-year lapse in doing this. But, wow, um, already – I noticed today, just to, just to tack on lefties, um, Biden's last talk the other night, four statistical falsities in, that, in his talk. So he ain't immune, baby. This is, we're still, we are still in the trenches, and we are going to be here for a long, long time. Think World War I. Think 1914, 1915, dug in, inches, whistles, machine guns. We're going to be here for a long time. Okay, point number nine. I did watch some television the other night. Not television, it was Netflix, whatever you want to call it. And we watched a program about the Cecil Hotel. It's a, it's a docu-series on Netflix about the Cecil Hotel in downtown L.A., which sits in Skid Row. And if you've never been to downtown L.A. and you've never seen downtown L.A. Skid Row, it is the largest Skid Row area in the country. And it is impressive. It's 56 blocks or 58 square blocks of Skid Row. And this is, we're talking tent cities, massive, massive, massive drug problems, the bubonic plague, tons of crime. It's every unsavory thing you could possibly want in society, but it's structured in this 56, 50, 58 block area. I have parked, I've been in my car in the middle of the day, sitting at a traffic light next to a cop. So two lanes in both directions. I'm in the slow lane, cops in the fast lane right next to me, and standing in front of my car is a crack dealer that has a line of people in front of him, open air, broad daylight crack dealing with nobody stopping them. Like they're not even trying to stop this. They're trying. It is one of the most incredible things I've ever seen. In 2000, when I covered the Republican National Convention there or Democratic Convention, I can't remember which one, they went in and they bust all of these people out of downtown. Where they put them, I have no idea. Um, it was a huge scandal, and they turned downtown into a mili military zone. I've never seen anything like it. I got my ass handed to me at that event, punched, kicked, gassed, clubbed, and almost shot in the head by LAPD. Rubber bullets, not real bullets. Um, it was an eye-opener as to how LAPD operated, and I have never forgotten it. Uh, there were things that happened that were just insane what I saw happen with LA Sheriff's Department, SWAT, um, what they did to civilians, just crazy stuff. So anyway, I got sidetracked there. It was exciting. I also made some really fun pictures and I had a blast. So don't think it was terrible. I enjoyed every second of it. Even the, even the part where the, the cops were like, you know, what <laughs> cop turned around, they were in like formation running down the street and they had these like, um, gas, uh, tear gas cylinder guns and they were in riot gear. And I, and I like tucked in behind them and they were doing these like jogging in place things. It was like they were training during the Republican convention or convention. It's kind of odd. And, like, I got a little bit too close, and, like, the guy in the last row, like, turned around and took the butt of the, of the cylinder gun and just tried to hit me in the forehead with it. And I was like, seriously? I mean, I wasn't going anywhere. I was just standing there. But that kind of stuff happened all the time. I still had fun. So, anyway, the Cecil Hotel is this hotel that has an incredibly 
horrible track record of people dying and ODing and jumping off build the building and getting pushed out and whatever. And there's a tourist from Vancouver who ends up disappearing and it becomes a huge national story. That is not why I, that, that I'm interested in this program. It's a sad story. You figure out what happens to her at the end. It's not good. It's not a conspiracy. It's just something sad and tragic. And I felt so bad for her parents who were first gen immigrants who had a Chinese restaurant in Vancouver. And you just see them and your heart just falls out of your chest because I can't even imagine losing a kid. The part of the show that mystified me was a concept of the, quote, web sleuth. I guess what you could interchange with web sleuth, sleuth is, quote, complete dumbass or completely untrained speculative dumbass that goes online. So when this woman disappears, there's a piece of video of her in an elevator, which you probably have all seen. It was everywhere. She's acting funny. And these, this, quote, web sleuth community comes to the rescue. All I can say is if anything ever happens to you and you're trapped in a mine somewhere, like Rambo, Rambo wasn't trapped. He went into the mine because it was his safe zone. It was his warm and fuzzy place, and he was going to take down that sheriff one way or another. Brian Dennehy, damn you. Anyway, if you're trapped in a mine shaft, you do not want web sleuths on your side because this documentary starts covering these people who are, quote, web sleuths. And I'm looking at my wife, and she's looking at me, and we're both saying, are you out of your effing mind? Why, are you, why would anyone listen to these people? Look, I have no training in law enforcement. I have no training in forensics. I have no training in, in missing, missing persons reports. I have no training in the protocol and how any of this works. So if I go online into a chat room and start talking about this, or better yet, if I go on Facebook and making grand proclamations about what's happening in this case, not only am I not helping, I'm making it exponentially worse. And yet this whole documentary features one after the other of these people that I just kept looking at and saying to my wife, why on earth are we hearing from any of these people? These folks made leap after leap after leap incorrect leap after leap after leap. They blamed people who weren't involved. They blamed the LAPD. They said the LAPD was working in cahoots with the, with the uh, staff of the hotel. And I'm thinking, have you ever been around LAPD? Do you think they're going to take time out to, to work with a hotel staff at the Hotel Cecil? No, it's, it's completely unrealistic and improbable. And yet you're on Facebook spreading it around the world that there's some secret conspiracy. Some poor death metal guy ends up staying at the same hotel a year before and somehow the quote web sleuth community puts him in the hotel at the same time as the girl who disappeared he's back in mexico he's doing his death metal thing in mexico and all of a sudden gets an email from a friend like dude were you involved and he's like what he wasn't even in the country when this thing went down and yet this whole web sleuth community is huge what I came away with was the LAPD and the investigators involved, they kind of had to respond to this community. And I was like, oh, no, my head, it hurts. My head is cracking. You should see this documentary just to listen to the Web Sleuth people. It's freaking awesome because it shows how, how far, not only did our train come off the tracks, it like, it blew off off the tracks, off the bridge, into a bottomless chasm. That's how far off we are. I felt bad for LAPD investigators, and it takes me a lot to feel bad for LAPD investigators. But it was fascinating, and I thought, holy cow. Okay, last thing we're going to talk about is um, some of my upcoming goals. Not work goals, although I'm hoping that work-life Work life and personal life, which is very much intertwined and always has been, at least for the last 11 years. I, I don't, you know, it's not like I turn blurb on and off. I don't do nine to five or eight to four, or eight to six or whatever. Uh, everyone I know is involved in the industry. And so my life and my blurb life are one and the same. I cannot get away from it. I was telling somebody this the other day when I first moved to Santa Fe full time, which was a year ago. We'd been here 15 years part time, but left California, moved here full time a year ago. 
I walked out of my house in downtown Santa Fe and a guy rode by on a bicycle that I've never in my life seen, ever seen this guy. No, I, and I still, I haven't talked to him to this day. I've never seen him again. He goes, Hey, blurb guy. And just rode by on his bike. So that tells you how intertwined everything is. So I'm hoping to continue to intertwine everything and actually make it even more intertwined. Blurb, AG, Milner. It should all be one and the same. So my goal is to get in the van and get on the road and get the hell away from conference calls and the computer because it's just not healthy for me to spend so much time. It's probably not healthy healthy for you either to spend so much time in front of a screen and in front of these cell phones, computers, whatever. It's making my head hurt. I want an adventure list. I'm buying a collapsible canoe. One of the goals I have is a multi-day canoe trip, hopefully up in Boundary Waters, up on the Canadian border. Uh, that would also combine fishing. I am hell-bent, people, hell-bent on catching walleye. I'm going to try Conscious Lake here in a few weeks. Once I get the canoe, I'm going to go back out and make sure I can actually legally put the canoe in the lake. They closed it to all boat traffic, but I'm thinking it's still open to canoes and kayaks, rafts, whatever, pack rafts, float rafts, whatever, throw a garbage can out there and strap yourself to it. I think it's fine as long as it doesn't have a motor, but because this water is so low, I want to make sure I can get out there. I got to catch walleye. If you've not had walleye cooked over a campfire in a nice batter, and I know frying fish, I know it's bad. You always want to grill it. All the hipsters are grilling. I don't, I don't care. Shore lunch in Canada with, with fried walleye is the single best piece of fish I've ever had. And it's now stuck in my craw again. It's been years since I've had this, and I will get it. So a uh, multi-day canoe trip. I'd like to do Boundary Waters, but I also may do like the Pecos through West Texas. That looks pretty good too. Um, Devil's Post Pile out in West Texas near Del Rio. That's another place I'd like to go, and that's close. I can access it pretty easily. Um, I'd also like to ride a portion of the Tour Divide. The Tour Divide is a route that runs. It's a mountain bike route that runs from Banff, Canada to Antelope Wells, New Mexico. It's 2,700 miles. There's 200 20,000 plus feet of climbing. It's like riding up Mount Everest seven or eight times. It is not technically, it's not a technical route. You're on a lot of dirt roads. You're on a lot of forest roads, but it's not a lot of, from what I hear anyway, it's not a lot of like hardcore, heavy, technical single track. It's much more approachable. The record for the Tour Divide, I want to say is like 13 or 14 days on a bicycle, people. 13 or 14 days total on a bicycle from Banff, Canada to Antelope Wells. That's, that's inhumane. That, that is superhuman. I don't even know. And by the way, the woman I've spoken about many times on this podcast, Lyle Wilcox, I believe she holds the women's record. And she was actually attempting to break the overall men's and women's record a couple of years ago when the weather didn't work out. It was too much snow, <clears throat> too muddy one year, and that nobody could get anywhere. But I want to do a section of the Tour Divide. And that could be the New Mexico portion. So truck, bike, uh, you know, van my bike up to the Colorado border. Sean, if you're listening, I need a wingman because I ain't doing this alone. I'm fragile. I need someone to hold my hand, and I think you might be the guy. So we ride. Um, and see how I said we automatically? I just, I just volunteered him to do this. So I want to ride. Maybe we start, start with that. Now, here's the cool part about the Tour Divide. You start in Banff, where I have been, Banff National Park. It's unbelievably gorgeous. It's berry, though. There's a lot of bears, and their bears are like legit bears that will just rip you in two and like and use your shin bone for a toothpick. So it's a little berry. It's a little scary. You've got weather is a serious part of the process. You've got snow in the high passes, et cetera. It can be incredibly difficult. I, I don't know anyone personally who's done the whole thing. I know people who've almost done the whole thing. Um, who bike fell apart, they got injured, they got just too wasted and didn't want to continue, or they ran out of time, you know, whatever. But it looks great. I'd love to do the New Mexico part. The people who I've spoken to who wrote it said their favorite part of the whole ride was the New Mexico portion. So I was like, wow, really? I've heard that consistently from people, and I was kind of shocked because when you look at where else, Colorado, Wyoming, Montana, uh, Canada, there's a lot of really... That country is it's the best country we have left. So I really want to do it. So those are on my list. I don't know if I'll get there this year. How on earth I could do any of this with a full-time blurb job is impossible. Like the most time I could get off is probably two weeks in a row, and even that would be a nightmare. 
And so there's no way in hell I can do the whole thing in two weeks, but I might be able to do the New Mexico portion in two weeks. I might be able to do the multi-day canoe trip in two weeks. But the goal is to be in the van, on the road, doing my job, and living this life. And everything is blend together. So I'll be doing AG23 programming from the road. I'll be doing interviews. I'll be doing podcasts. I'll be doing author uh, contributor features. I'll be doing blurb social stuff. I'll be doing blurb blog stuff. I'll be doing blurb programming events. And then my, my stuff, all my projects and stuff fall way, way, way down the list. I might throw a day or two here and there. If I get back to Death Valley, work on my project, maybe I throw a day or two uh, at it here and there. But that stuff's sort of low priority, even though it's a lot of fun for me. Uh, but I will get to do the canoeing and the fishing and the hiking and cycling and all that stuff. So that's sort of my goal. Um, and I think that's it for the podcast this week. I, I was going to tell another puke story, but I don't want to overdo the puke stories. I have gotten a lot of positive comments from people about the the power and beauty of the puke stories that I've shared so far. I think we can all pr- appreciate how amazing it can be to see or be a part of a puking experience, but I don't want to overdo it. So I think I'm going to save it. And then next week, I'll come back with some other equally mortifying story about some aspect or some little piece of my life that I might not have yet shared. So thanks for tuning in, and I will see you soon.